Well, hopefully this won't be useless. Hopefully this is something that will be a good reminder to us all about God's Spirit abiding in us. So I invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, verse uh, 27 through verse 38. That's what we'll be looking at today. Luke chapter 20, 27 through 38. Hear these words now. Then Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question, Teacher, Moses gave us a law that if a man dies leaving a wife but no children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow, but he also died. Then the third brother married her, and this continued with all seven of them who died without children. Finally, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Jesus replied, marriage is for people here on earth. But in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will never die again. In that respect, they will be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, even Moses proved this when he wrote about the burning bush. Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, he referred to the Lord as the Lord of Abraham, or the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead, for they are all alive in him. And this, my friends, is the word of God for us and for all of God's people. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today grateful for another opportunity to be here in your house. Grateful for another opportunity to have worshipped you. So Lord, we ask you also for us to be grateful, to make us grateful for another opportunity to learn from your word. So Lord, sit with us and minister to us. And maybe teach us something new that is indeed useful. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and redeemer. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So a little while ago we sang what could have been to you a new new hymn, um, Are We Yet Alive? This is a hymn written by, if you didn't notice it, it's written by Charles Wesley. And I like, by the way, we've gone two weeks in a row singing Charles Wesley hymns. We can do that any time. But anyway. This is a song that is sung at annual conference every year when the business portion of annual conference is beginning on the first official day of annual conference. They sing this pretty much at the beginning of the proceedings. And it's a song that's a reminder to me and well, really, it's supposed to be a reminder to all people that no matter what has happened before that moment, you notice in one of the verses that we didn't sing, it mentions what perils we have faced since we last gathered or assembled or whatever the wordage might be. 
It acknowledges that. But it's also an acknowledgement that no matter what has happened in the world, that God is still on the throne. That no matter what has happened, that the grace that Jesus Christ bought for us on the cross is all sufficient. And that the Holy Spirit, no matter what has happened, continues to live in us and sustain in us. Bottom line is, none of this changes. No matter what has happened in the world, whether it's things we've done or whether it's things that have happened that were beyond our control. Point is, is that God's kingdom is forever. Period. Full stop. End of paragraph. End of the book. God's kingdom is forever. Now, we've kind of talked about it before, and I'm not really going to dwell on this today, but we have at least acknowledged all of the controversy that's going on in the United Methodist Church, and I'll get to see this firsthand when I go to General Conference in May. For better or for worse, I will be there to see it up close and personal. There's a lot of unrest and a lot of uneasiness right now about what might happen. The question that's asked a lot is, well, what if? What if this happens? Or what if this vote is taken? What if, you know, on and on. That's a lot of that. There are a lot of uneasiness, uh, uneasy tensions going on within congregations as well, though. And, and not only about the, the stuff going on at the larger church level and the denominational level, but it's also about the life of the community within the congregation or even that the congregation is a part of. I don't have to tell you that the community around this, this church, where this church is located, has changed a lot. We've, we, we've all seen it over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so. We've seen a complete shift in the demographics of our neighborhood. Well, Lost Gap has seen it as well. We talked about that this morning, too, at, at Lost Gap. Is They have seen it as well in their own community, not so much the demographics shifting, but it's the fact that people have left and they haven't come back. They've relocated to other areas. So because of things like that, in a lot of congregations, they're asking the what-if questions too. Well, what if this change continues? What if so-and-so moves away? And these questions are, are understandable. And, and, and don't get me wrong, it is good to think about these things so that we can talk about some of the more tangible aspects of the life of the congregation so that we can plan and we can be ready for things and try to meet those challenges. But admittedly also, on the flip side of that, is that those kind of questions are also kind of inwardly focused. We're focusing more on what's happening within our own little world and not so much of what, what's happening in the world at large. And again, these concerns are valid, but as kingdom people, we have to be mindful of the fact that God's kingdom is much bigger than the United Methodist Church. God's kingdom is much bigger than Druid Hills United Methodist Church. God is much, or God's kingdom is much bigger than Meridian, Mississippi, Mississippi, the United States, and on and on. God's kingdom is so much bigger than any of those things. So we do have to also think about questions like, what about the kingdom? What are we doing about evangelism? What about being the hands and feet of Jesus? We have to also think about those questions. Because when we dwell on the what-ifs 
and talk about gloom and doom scenarios, and again, whether we're talking about politics, the church, or whatever, this really shows a mentality that is not the mentality that a disciple should have. The mentality that it shows is one of fear. It's not one of faith, and it's not one of hope. When we dwell on those things... Where in Scripture does it say that God depends on a specific denomination or a specific church to do His work or to even exist? Don't bother looking for it. It's not there. I double-checked. It's not there. Scripture doesn't say any of that. As disciples, we are not called to be people of fear. The Bible says many times to not fear. To place our trust fully in God. So therefore we are called to be people of faith in an eternal God who will never die no matter what happens in this world. God is not going anywhere. Nothing that happens on this earth can change the fact that God reigns forever and that his kingdom is everlasting forever and always. God's Holy Spirit abides in us around us, and at times even through us. And therefore, we are made alive in him forever. We have that promise of resurrection and eternal life. The promise of resurrection is what sets the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from all other faiths. Here's the thing about resurrection, or really about God, I should say. If God was not an eternal God, if God was not going to be on the throne no matter what, then resurrection simply couldn't happen. Resurrection would not be possible. If resurrection didn't happen, then the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross was really pointless. You can think about it this way. The work that Jesus accomplished on the cross when he gave himself for us was the defeat of sin. But then on the third day, death was defeated when the resurrection took place. Both of those things had to be conquered through the work of Jesus Christ. See, death, we read in the, in the scriptures that death is the wage of sin. Therefore, both had to be done away with. And quite simply, if resurrection did not come about, if death had not been defeated then the work that Christ did on the cross really wouldn't have mattered. Resurrection, though, was something that the Sadducees didn't believe in. And we we see that very plainly in the scriptures. It indicates they were a a sect within Judaism who um, didn't believe in resurrection. The reason that they didn't believe in resurrection is because for them, the holy scriptures were the Torah and nothing more. They were the books, basically, that Moses wrote. They didn't really care so much about what the prophets said. They didn't, as far as they were concerned, any notion of a resurrection was just a fairy tale. Their mentality was, Moses said it, we believe it, therefore that settles it. Moses didn't say anything about there being a resurrection, so we don't believe in it. That's pretty much what their, what their mentality was. But then this 
controversial, revolutionary Jewish rabbi named Jesus comes around. And he starts talking about all of this stuff, not only claiming to see the Messiah, but talking about resurrection. See, the Pharisees already didn't like Jesus because we mentioned a little while back that the Pharisees believed that the way to righteousness was through obedience to the law to the letter. Period. Nothing else. The Sadducees similarly believed, again, that their view was the right one. And because they believed that their view, specifically about resurrection, that it was the only one that mattered, and that Moses didn't at least outright say anything about resurrection, that it must not exist, well, they didn't like the fact that Jesus had come along undermining their teachings too. Because they were trying to gain more influence within the Jewish community. They were trying to gain more control over the teachings of the temple. And they wanted basically the books of Moses that he wrote, that he that purportedly wrote, he wanted, they wanted those books to be the only ones that were taught and nothing more. So they hated the fact that Jesus was undermining their, um, their teaching. And a large part of the reason for that, we hear a lot today about the one percenters, the people that are, that are really wealthy and that have a lot of political clout and other power. Well, of the day, the Sadducees were the one percenters. They were a lot of people, they were a group of people who had a lot of wealth and therefore had a lot of influence. But they were also very philosophical. Basically, they would gather together and they would read through the Torah and they would say, all right, this is what this means. And again, as far as they were concerned, because they had the money and they had a lot of power, their opinions were the only ones that mattered. You might even say that they were such snobs and such elitists that even the priests and the scribes, the Levites, you know, those people, that they wanted nothing to do with them. They really didn't gather around them very much. They really didn't care what they had to say for the most part. But honestly, on this day, it was a little different. You see, word had gotten around, apparently, that the Sadducees were going to try to trip up this teacher named Jesus. And there were a lot of other Jews who didn't like him. So they were going to try to gather around to see the Sadducees take him down. This had all the trappings of a title fight, like a boxing match where world championship was on the line. So everyone was gathered together for a fight. They, the Sadducees wanted Jesus branded a heretic. So what they did in order to try to trap him up was to concoct this really idiotic scenario about a woman marrying seven brothers. Something that, even at that time, people knew was just plain dumb. But they still wanted to see what Jesus was going to do with this. And a lot of people thought, all right, we're going to see the end of this this rabble-rouser. But then maybe some people thought, we're really going to see if he is the Messiah. Let's see what he has to say. So the Sadducees, in the title fight, they land the first punch. So they think, anyway. 
And they start their argument basically by saying, well, Moses says, dot, dot, dot. And as they're laying out this stupid scenario, and I'm, I'm sorry, that's just, it was so stupid. That's just all, the only word I can think of to describe it. I can picture Jesus sitting there listening to them and, and maybe even having one of those smirks on his face. You know what I mean? Like, really? Seriously? Really? Okay, let's do this. So after they lay this argument out with, G- with this smirk on Jesus' face, I can picture him going, well, Moses also says, uh-huh, two can play this game. So if we want to go on with the title fight analogy, Jesus came out swinging too. Only his punches really did get landed. And basically what Jesus lays out for them is this. You're comparing apples to oranges. You're missing the whole point of eternity. And then Jesus further stuns them by saying basically... You're right, Moses didn't outright say anything about resurrection, but he did acknowledge that eternal life exists. That Moses knew about life after a physical death. Because in order to really underscore that he was talking about the God, Big G, he referred to them as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He did not refer to God as the God of those dudes who used to be alive. He didn't refer to him as the God of the dead people. He did not do any such thing. He referred to these people by name and saying, this is their God, the same God we have. Therefore, that God is the God of the living, not the dead. In other words, he's saying that Moses made that connection. And this was such a radical thought that even one of the scribes slides up and says, he's right. Good point. Because here's the bottom line, folks. Without resurrection, there is no hope. And if we have no hope, then what are any of us doing here? If there is no hope, why are we even bothering? If there is no hope, why did we come to church in the first place? Because we know that there is hope. And we know that that hope is promised to us through resurrection. Because without resurrection, there is no hope. There is no hope of redemption, no hope of anything beyond this world. And it shows that God's kingdom is everlasting and that God's kingdom is much bigger than anything of this world. Jesus is telling us, and even Moses acknowledges, that life lasts much longer than till after the days, or lasts long after the days of our lives on this earth are done. Because God's spirit abides and therefore we abide in him. Churches come and go. Throughout the history of the large Christian church, we've seen it. But God has continued to live 
denominations, even our very own. It was born, it was split apart, it merged back again, it merged with others. But God, in spite of all of that, abides. People go to the grave all the time. But God lives on. And Jesus demonstrates that death is not the final answer. Because he was resurrected. None of the people who had a hand in his death had anything to do with that. As a matter of fact, no human at all had anything to do with that. No event in the world that came about had anything to do with that except the power of God the Father bringing him back to life. On that day in which death was defeated, God lives on. And in us, the Spirit abides and does indeed make us yet alive. Folks, as Christ's disciples, we can hold fast to the promise of resurrection. No matter what happens to Druid Hills United Methodist Church somewhere down the road, no matter what happens to the United Methodist Church as a denomination, no matter who the governor of Mississippi is, no matter who the president of the United States is, one thing remains. God abides. God lives on. God lives on in this world and is continuously still making things new, even in our very midst. Maybe and hopefully even your life has been one of those things transformed completely by God's love and his grace and his mercy. And he abides in us through the power of the Holy Spirit for one reason. Anybody care to guess what that reason is? He loves us that much. So simple, but yet so profound. God loves us that much that he chooses to live in us. So yes, Virginia, there is a resurrection because God abides. God lives. The promise of resurrection, since we have that, my friends, we can live that out now. We can live as people who have faith and who have hope and who long for a, new, for a new day to come because we know that it's coming. Because God promises us that it's coming. So we live in the resurrection here and now. And quite simply, that means we have no fear. We have no fear. We fear not as the people of God. Quite simply, God's got this because he lives. My friends, I offer this to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.